You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, we're going to get right into the the sermon this morning. Uh, We're kind of rearranging a couple things here with our service, and you'll see why as soon as you look at the screen and see the title. Um, We're in a series called Practicing Resurrection, as many of you know, um, talking about the different spiritual practices that Christians for 2,000 years have been engaging in to form, for for the Holy Spirit to form and shape us in Christ's likeness. And today it falls upon me to now talk about uh, the practice, the formative practice of giving. And specifically giving in the form of the tithe. That's what I'm going to be talking about today. Now i got to begin uh, with a little, a little disclaimer here. I, I, I understand um, that whenever a preacher is on a platform and says, I'm going to talk to you about giving today, um, there's usually at least inwardly some groaning that takes place. Uh, maybe there's a little bit of tension. Maybe you feel a little uptight or nervous. I just want to set you at ease this morning. You can take a deep breath and relax Uh, There's not going to be any arm twisting or anything like that going on. I always reluctantly talk about giving whenever I do talk about it, uh, just because I'm well aware of how often this topic has been used and abused. And um, people oftentimes have been manipulated using some some real true principles, but oftentimes they're manipulated to use people for selfish gain. I totally acknowledge that. That's why I get so reluctant to talk about it. And yet, the reason I'm, the reason I'm motivated to talk about this uh, is because this is one of the, the practices for 2,000 years that God uses to form us out of our cultural rhythm of greed, materialism, self-centeredness. Rightly approached, the practice of giving is what God can use to save us out of that way of life and that way of orienting ourselves to human beings. All right, so that's really, I'm, I'm interested in a church of people who are on the Jesus way and learning to become more and more like Christ. And he's forming and shaping us. So that's why I talk about these practices like prayer and scripture and worship and today the practice of giving. I, in, in the almost two years that I've been here, I have not yet preached on this. And I have a little bit of a different take than perhaps what you're used to hearing in evangelical churches So this is a little bit different of a take. Uh, So I want you to tune in. Even if you've heard a billion sermons on giving, uh, first of all, my condolences, but secondly, (laughs) um, this is not going to be quite like what you've heard. And yet I think it's going to be inspiring and challenging. I think hopefully if I will have done my job, you will be encouraged about this and not shamed or guilty or anything of the sort. I also want to let you know here at Village Church, what you give is between you and God. No one else looks at that. Um, that's just the way we go about it. And uh, so, with all of that said, I want us to pray and um, let's direct our hearts to the Lord. God, I thank you for this room full of my brothers and sisters that are on this journey with me. We have one life, each of us. And I certainly want to spend my life doing what I was put on this earth to do, and that is to worship you, to be in communion with you, and to be aligned under your vision and your heart and your purpose. And Lord, we're all on that journey in one way or another, in different places. We're all on that same journey. And Lord, you have given us 
these spiritual practices that if we choose to participate, it's possible that the Holy Spirit works through these practices to form and shape us in Christ's likeness. And so today, as we talk about the topic of giving, I pray that any fear that we have, any anxiety, that it would just be calmed and that we would see this as an invitation. And I pray that each one of us, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before your word. We would allow you to speak to us and challenge us. And we pray together, may your agenda be established this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to do, I'm going to call forth seven different witnesses from the scriptures today as we talk about this practice of giving, specifically in the form of the tithe. I want to talk about seven witnesses. You'll see them on the screen as we go along. The first witness I want to bring forth is the witness of the patriarchs. So we're going to go in chronological order. And we're going to start all the way at the very beginning of the Bible some 4,000 years ago with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs. You know, Abraham, we refer to him as the father of faith. And Abraham is really one of the pioneers of this idea that the true God is invisible. Abraham had been raised in Ur of the Chaldees, what would eventually become Babylon. And all he knows is paganism. All he knows is polytheism, the worship of many gods. And the whole world essentially can fit under that category at this stage in history. And yet Abraham has a, an encounter with this mysterious God who puts a call upon Abraham's life. And Abraham, rather than now worshiping all of the pagan gods of Ur of the Chaldees, he, he takes this enormous leap of faith and he begins to worship this one God, this one true God. And in Genesis 12, this God calls Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want you to leave your country, leave your people, and leave your father's household, which in other words would be his, his inheritance. So you could say it like this. God is saying, leave everything comfortable and familiar to you, everything that has given you identity and security in your life. I want you to leave that and go to a land I will show you. Abraham, just start walking and you don't even know where you're going. I'm going to tell you when to stop and I'm bringing you to a land I will give you and your descendants. So Abraham leaves and he obeys. He begins walking, not even knowing where he's going. But in doing so, he is exemplifying this is what faith is. Abraham is the father of faith. He receives this call. He believes and trusts God's character. And on the basis of that trust and that belief, it's converted into obedience. And he receives and obeys and submits to the call that God places on him. This is what faith is. It's belief and trust converted into obedience. And Abraham is the father of this faith that you and I are the heirs of. But he's not only the father of faith, he's also the father of the tithe. That word tithe, it's an old English word. It just means tenth. And so the practice of the tithe traditionally has been uh, giving to God of the first 10% of our increase. And I want you to notice where it comes from. Where, who dreamed this up? Was it some clergyman from the 17th century or something? No, it goes back 4,000 years. It starts with Abraham. As the story goes, Abraham... Later in life, he's traveling uh, down south to Hebron, which is where he's living at the time. And uh, as he's traveling, he's near the ancient city of Salem or Shalom. 
which would eventually become Jerusalem, the city of peace. And so he's traveling near this ancient, ancient city called Salem. He's going by, uh, by way of the King's Valley, what we would call the Kidron Valley today. And on this journey, he has this encounter with this mysterious guy named Melchizedek. Now, many hundreds of years later, the writer of Hebrews will refer back to this guy Melchizedek, and he will tell us that this guy Melchizedek is a clear prefiguring of Christ. And so Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness, and he's also the priest of the Most High God, and he's also the prince of the God of Salem. Or you could say it like this, the prince of peace. And so here's this king of righteousness, this priest of Shalom, Melchizedek, and he brings with him bread and wine, which is an obvious prophetic prefigurement of communion. So this type of Christ brings to this man of faith the elements of communion, we would say today, bread and wine, and he blesses Abraham. And Hebrews tells us without dispute that the lesser is blessed by the greater. So we have this great man, greater than Abraham, this figure of Christ with the elements of communion, bread and wine, and he blesses Abraham. And how does Abraham respond? He gives him a tenth of all of the spoil from his rescue mission. And that is actually the birth of the tithe. That's where it comes from. It comes from Abraham. And it's continued on in the patriarchs. So two generations later, his grandson Jacob is on the run from his own brother Esau because he's cheated Esau out of his birthright. At this point in Jacob's life, we would say he's, he's like a shyster. Um, he is a deceitful man. He's not really especially religiously devout. He is really a self-centered person. But just like Abraham, Jacob has this encounter with God. And as he's running for his life from Esau, he lays out under the stars one night using a stone for a pillow, and he falls asleep, and he has this bizarre dream involving a ladder reaching up to the heavens, and there's angels of God ascending and descending on this ladder. And Jacob wakes up, and he's like a transformed person. He just changes the trajectory of his life, becomes a whole new person. And here's how he responds. He says, from now on, I will honor this God of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, by giving him a tenth of all. So Jacob continues this patriarchal tradition of honoring God with the tithe. And then he goes forth to Haran. God blesses him. He's prospering, even despite the evil intentions of Laban to cheat him. Um, he just continues to prosper because of this blessing that's attached to the practice of the tithe. So that's the witness of the patriarchs. I just want you to take note of this. This is very important. The origin of the tithe does not come from the law. It comes before that with Abraham. It's not born of the law. It's born of faith in Abraham. So that's the witness of the patriarchs. The second witness I want to I bring forth is the witness of the law. So several hundred years after Abraham, his descendants have now multiplied. They're part of a, a nation now. They were in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. God raises up Moses. They're delivered miraculously from uh, bondage in Egypt. They cross the Red Sea on dry ground. They're wandering in the wilderness now, headed towards the promised land. And they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai, where through Moses, God gives to Israel the law. Now, what was the purpose of the law? If you've been with me for two years... You ought to know this by now. The Y'all don't look confident, so let me. 
The purpose of the law was to begin forming Israel into a properly worshiping and properly just society. If you fast forward 12, 1400 years later to Jesus, Jesus is going to be asked about the two, what's the most important commandment. And here's what he says. The whole law and prophets hang on these two things. Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, vertically, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, horizontally. Properly worshiping God, properly and just treatment with one another. This is what the whole law hangs upon. So in other words, God takes this very ancient, morally primitive people. All they know is polygamy. All they know is paganism. Egyptian paganism, all they know is gratuitous violence and warfare as a way of life. They, they, have, um, they have been formed and shaped by a very pagan, ugly, evil culture. And God says, I'm going to give you the law, which is going to be kind of like the training wheels. It's going to put you in the right trajectory, and it's going to form you and shape you. It's going to begin that process of forming you and shaping you into a properly worshiping and properly just society. That's the purpose of the law. Now, in the law, we, we have the practice of tithing for Israel encoded within, but it's part of a larger section that we would call the law of first things. The idea is that God wants you to honor him with that which is first in your life. So for Israel, this would mean like the first of your fruits, the first of your fields, the first of your flocks. So here's how it would work. Let's say you're an ancient Israelite, which is, you know, an agrarian society. You're a farmer. And let's say you've got a large flock of sheep. Well, the idea was that the firstborn male, the firstborn males of your flocks did not belong to you. They belonged unto God. And so you would take the firstborn male from your flock and you would sacrifice it upon the altar. And this was given to Israel, these descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as a perpetual reminder that you are God's people and you're to put God first. So this was the practice we find in the law that, that you were to take the firstborn male of your flocks and sacrifice it on the altar to God. Now, when it came to any unclean animals that you own, let's say you owned a bunch of donkeys, for example. You wouldn't take a firstborn male donkey, like an unclean animal, and sacrifice it on the altar. So if you had a firstborn male donkey... Uh, you had a choice. You could either destroy the animal or you could say, you know what? This donkey could be very useful to me and helpful to me on my farm. So instead of destroying the donkey, you could redeem it with a lamb. The same thing is true of your firstborn sons. You wouldn't sacrifice your son on the altar. Abraham's made that very clear in Genesis 22. But what you would do is you would redeem your son with a lamb. Or if you could not afford that, like, remember, Joseph and Mary were too poor. They could not bring that sacrifice of a lamb whenever Jesus was born. So instead of that, you could offer two pigeons or two turtle doves instead. Two turtle doves and a partridge and a pear tree. That's where it comes from. Bobby, don't sing. All right. Uh, moving right along. Uh, this, that's the foundational concept for the tithe is that when we honor God with the first tenth, it sanctifies the rest. And for Israel, there were blessings attached to this practice. You'll see this in Proverbs. Uh, look at what it says here. It's looking back on the law. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase so that your barns will be filled with plenty 
and your vats will overflow with new wine. So that's the witness of the law. Now, thirdly, let's look at the prophets. So once again, the law was given to form Israel into a properly worshiping and properly just society. Well, as you read the story of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, you'll find out, you know what? They weren't always faithful to that call. And oftentimes they got seduced into the three I's. Idolatry, immorality, injustice. These are the, it would be helpful for you to memorize that as you're working in, with the Old Testament. Those were the three I's. Injustice, immorality, and idolatry. And so whenever this would happen, God would raise up prophets who would be his mouthpiece to Israel calling them back to covenantal faithfulness and reproving them for their idolatry immorality and injustice so let's look at this example in the prophet Malachi chapter 3 this is God speaking to Israel through the coming Messiah God's about to raise up this Messiah figure and so this is like a prophetic um Uh, declaration in the mouth of this coming Messiah. God says, Then I will draw near to you, Israel, for judgment. I will be swift to bear witness against the sorcerers. So these would be people engaged in idolatry. There's the first I. Against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely. So those are forms of immorality. Against those who oppress the hired workers in their wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the foreigner. So this is injustice. You see all three eyes just in this one verse. Against the foreigner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, have not perished. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And here's the answer. Will anyone rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how are we robbing you? In your tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and thus... Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. He's saying, try me. Put me to the test. It's very unusual that God would invite us to put him to the test. But here he's saying, go for it. Put me to the test. And here's how it finishes, verses 11 and 12. I will rebuke the locust for you so that it will not destroy the produce of your soil and your vine in the field shall not be barren, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will count you happy, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. All right. Now, as New Covenant Christians, we do not see Malachi as as a binding law. In fact, even Israel did not see Malachi as as a law. Um, Malachi belonged to the company of the prophets. But as New Covenant Christians, we don't see it as binding law. You you might be sitting there thinking, Ryan, you're bringing up Malachi. You're getting all of the Old Testament here. Are you saying we're bound to the Old Covenant? That's not what I'm saying at all. I totally understand that. But what I am saying is that Malachi remains a prophetic witness to the spiritual principle of the tithe that's pioneered by that father of faith, Abraham. We all need structure and definition to our giving. And not just our giving, but all of these practices. Prayer, scripture, worship. 
we need some structure or definition to our giving because if we just simply say well I will just give whenever the mood hits me I'll give whatever I feel like giving or not feel like giving I'll just do it whenever I feel inspired to do so there's no formation happening which is the whole point there's no formation because there's no structure there's no definition so what we tend to do is this we receive our paycheck okay this goes to the mortgage this goes to the car payment this goes to utilities visa this that the other thing and then from whatever's left, whatever remains, whatever the leftovers are, you know, there's nothing wrong with leftovers. But if you're inviting friends to your house and you want to make them feel important, what you don't do is say, oh, shucks, I forgot to plan a meal. Let me rummage around my refrigerator. I think I have some leftovers from three nights ago. And yet that's often how we approach not just this practice, but all of the spiritual practices. Here's why I believe in the principle of the tithe. It's not because I see it as a binding law, because I don't. That's where I differ with a lot of preachers and pastors. I don't see this as like some binding law that you better do it or else. I don't, I don't see it like that. But I believe in the principle of the tithe because it provides some structure and definition to our giving, which is absolutely necessary if we're going to be formed in the character of Christ. And Malachi is simply a prophetic witness that through the practice of the holy tithe, we resist the idolatry of greed. And we resist the injustice of spending all of our income on our own self. And he's simply a witness to this ancient practice that goes all the way back to Abraham. Look, you can, um, you can agree with me or not on, on what I've just said about tithing and all of that, but I'm just going to end with this on this. I still got four more witnesses, by the way. But <laughs> I'm just going to say this. If you don't have formation and structure and definition to your giving, you will inevitably be shaped by the spirit of this age. You will be shaped in the spirit of greed, materialism, and self-centeredness. You can't help it because there's no structure and formation to pull you out of that way of life. And that I will stand by. I will go toe-to-toe -to -toe with any of you today on that, on that point. All right, the fourth witness I'm calling is kind of important. The fourth witness I'm calling is Jesus. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Matthew 6, verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But I like what Bob Dylan says. Money doesn't talk, it swears. Money doesn't talk, money takes an oath. What does that mean? What am I saying? You know, people say that talk is cheap. But what you do when you put your money to something, that's like what you do when you put your hand on the Bible and say, so help me God. Money doesn't talk, it swears. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why does Jesus make such a, a big deal about this? Because money is that commodity of exchange that you receive in return for the investment of your energy and your intellect. So um, you go to college or you go to a trade school and you get some training, you get some education, you uh, develop some skills, and then you hire yourself out for the next maybe 40 years of your life 
40 hours a week, 50 or, 50 or more hours a week. You hire yourself, yourself out. And you invest your time, your mental energy, your intellect, your, 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 your life, essentially. You invest your labor and service to this company for the next 40 years. And in return, you receive a paycheck. And the paycheck is a tangible representation of your life's investment. This is my life. And so Jesus, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say where your heart is, there your money will follow. He says it's the opposite. Where you invest and put your money, eventually your heart follows right along behind it. Because money doesn't talk, it swears. And so if I, in other words, if I will learn this formational practice of taking the first of my income and investing it into the kingdom of God, that is a practice that organically and naturally will begin forming me into a kingdom-minded and kingdom-hearted person. It's about discipleship. It's about Christ-likeness. It's about imitating Jesus. This is a formative practice that gets us there by the Spirit's empowerment. And this is why Jesus, 12 verses later, he's able to say this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So we give, and we give to the church. Why do we give to the church? Because Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. So what is Jesus doing in the earth today? Among many other things, primarily what is Jesus doing? He is building his church. The hope of this lost, dark world is vibrant, Jesus-centered, life-giving local communities of faith, local expressions of Christ's body. That is the hope of the world. That's where Jesus is most active and most present. That's where you can find him. And that's the epicenter of the kingdom of God in the world today. There's, the kingdom of God is advancing all over the place. It's beyond four walls. And yet the epicenter of the kingdom of God advancing is the local church. And so we don't just say, Jesus, I know you're building your church. Good luck with that, pal. I hope it goes well with you. What we say as disciples is, and I'm right there with you. I want to partner with you, and I want to be fully invested in what you're doing. Does that make sense? All right. The fifth witness is the witness of the apostles. I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is a letter that the apostle Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to the ancient church in Corinth. And look at what he says here in chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving, which is actually Paul's way of saying, I really do need to write to you about the ministry of giving. He's just trying to be diplomatic. I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem. For I know how eager you are to help. And I have been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you in Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. So let me give you the backstory here. In the first century church, one of the big earth-shaking implications of the gospel announcement that Jesus is Lord is that now what constitutes the people of God is no longer based on ethnicity. 
It's not based on Torah observance. It's not based on circumcision. What makes up the people of God is based on belief upon, baptism into, and obedience unto King Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. If you have believed upon, are baptized into, and obedient unto King Jesus, congratulations, you are under the reign of Christ. You are part of the kingdom of God and the family of God. Well, this had some pretty mind-blowing implications for the early church. And there was a lot of tension, a lot of animosity in a lot of these early churches between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. It took them some time to get this assimilated into their lives. So a lot of the Jewish believers were suspicious of the Gentile believers, and a lot of the Gentile believers were suspicious of their Jewish, Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. So there's a lot of hostility. And what Paul wants to do is he wants to break that down. And he wants to build solidarity in the body of Christ for the Jew and the Gentile to come together as one. He says, we're, we're one new humanity formed in Christ. So let's live that way. So that's kind of what Paul ultimately wants to do. And one of his big strategies in this particular moment is he is taking up an offering. You know, he's traveling out in uh, northern, the northern area, uh, Macedonia. He's also been traveling in Greece. These are predominantly Gentile churches. And so for a whole year, Paul's been traveling amongst these churches, encouraging them to give an offering. He says, I, I want this to be a big, strong offering. And once he collects this big offering, his intention is he's going to bring it to Jerusalem and give it to the church in Jerusalem, which is obviously predominantly Jewish Christians and he wants to be able to give this offering to the Jewish believers telling them this comes from your Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ and they want you to know this is an expression of our solidarity with you we are in this thing together and we owe you and your people a debt of gratitude because it is through you that we even have access to the knowledge of God and ultimately God's Messiah so we're so grateful that we get to be part of what God began in you and this is an expression of our solidarity we're in this thing together. That's what Paul wants to do. That's kind of what he's up to. Well, at the stage that he's writing this letter, he's up in the northern part of Macedonia, and he's writing this letter to this church down in the south in Corinth because he's kind of concerned that the church in Corinth is not going to come through. You know, he knows that this Corinthian church is kind of flaky. They've caused a lot of problems for him in the past. And so Paul's writing this letter because he's a little bit concerned that they're not going to come through with this offering. So let's pick it up here in verse 3. But I am sending these brothers to be sure you are really ready, as I have been telling them, and that your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting of you. In other words, he's been up in Macedonia bragging on this Corinthian church. Man, I'm telling you guys, they are so enthusiastic about this offering. They are just knocking it out of the park down there. They think it's the greatest idea that we're doing this. They've been taking a whole year to collect this offering. They've probably collected a whole bunch of money. And within a few days or a few weeks, Paul's about to send some of these Macedonian believers down to Corinth to check on the status of this offering. And what Paul doesn't want to happen is for the church to say, oh, that was this week? We were supposed to, we were supposed to have that ready? We'll get right on that. That's what he doesn't want to have happen. So let's finish the passage, verses 4 through 8. He says, we would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all I had told them, 
So I thought I would send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. So he says this, remember this, a farmer who, who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure for God loves a person who gives cheerfully and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. So just take note, this is the Apostle Paul telling us that when we give money into the kingdom of God, it is like a farmer sowing seed. The seed leaves your hand for a period of time, but in due season it's multiplied. I am fully aware that there are unscrupulous hucksters and charlatans who will take Paul's principle here and twist it and use it for their own good, manipulating and using other people. I, I think that's a great tragedy and a great scandal, and God's judgment is waiting. And yet, it doesn't negate the fact that this is the Apostle Paul. There's a principle here that's true, that when we give, it's, it's like sowing seed, and he wants us, therefore, to give generously, knowing that God is able to make all grace abound to you. Amen? Two more witnesses. These two will go quick. Number six is the witness of the apocalypse. Now, apocalypse doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean doom and gloom and asteroids falling to the earth and Armageddon and nuclear holocaust. That's not what it means. The word apocalypse means unveiling. And actually, it literally means to pull back the curtain. And the last book of the Bible, the final book of the Bible, is called the apocalypse or the unveiling or the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in chapters 4 and 5, there's this great worship scene where the saints of God, they're saying things like this, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory and power and honor and wealth or riches. And then at the very end of the book, there's this depiction of this redeemed society. It's depicted as a city that comes down from heaven, out of heaven, this new Jerusalem with its rivers and its tree, the leaves that are for the healings of the nations, uh, the gates and all of this type of thing. And it says that the nation shall bring into the city, this restored humanity in Christ, the nation shall bring their glory, their honor, their wealth. So just notice that from, gener from Genesis to Revelation, from Abraham to Apocalypse, we find this pattern set forth that one of the ways that we honor and worship God is by bringing forth the first fruits of our increase. One more witness, one final witness. And that's the witness of the church. The witness of the church. You know, we don't get to make Christianity up. We live in a very, we live in a society, especially here, a society of do-it-yourself spirituality and make it up as you go. Take whatever you want and make your own personal hodgepodge of spiritual truth. That is not what Christianity is. Christianity is a received inheritance. It is a, salvation is not just liberation from sin and Satan. Salvation is also baptism into a community, into a religious tradition. And we are the recipients, the lucky, fortunate, blessed recipients of this precious faith tradition that's 2,000 years old. 
And along with this tradition, together with it, we are handed this practice of tithing. It is a received spiritual Christian practice of Christian formation. And the practice of the tithe provides a form and a structure, just as with all of these other spiritual practices we're talking about. For example, we're not just told to pray, we're also given the prayer. Jesus says, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, etc. We're given this specific prayer so that we can be properly formed in prayer. We're not just told to read, but we're given a specific text. We're given specific structure to our, our spiritual reading. We're not just told to worship, but we're given this 2,000-year-old practice of gathering together with our brothers and sisters in Christ on the first day of the week for communal worship. And in the same way, we're not just told to give, but we're given a specific formative practice, practice of our giving, the Holy Tithe. So it's pray and pray like this. Read and read this. Worship and worship like this. Give and give like this. And these are the practices of resurrection that form and shape us. And I can just tell you as my own personal witness, I can tell you that God has blessed me and blessed my household throughout my life, and it's because we've been faithful in this practice. And today I've brought forth all of these witnesses, seven of them, the witness of the patriarchs, the law, the prophets, Jesus, the apostles, the apocalypse, and the church. You have heard and received these witnesses. But the reality is, you won't really know on a first-hand basis if all of this is true. Unless, as the Lord says, He says, try me now in this. Put me to the test and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing until you don't even have room to store it. And that's what the Lord promises us. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.